Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Payments Podium, the podcast that brings in professionals from all over the industry to be able to speak their mind and educate us when it comes to all the different topics that are happening out there in the payments landscape. I am very happy today to welcome to the show, Pam Rodriguez, the president and CEO of ePay Advisors. How are you doing today, Pam? I'm great, Kevin. Thanks for asking, and and thanks for inviting me to uh, participate in the podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here. This show, folks, for all of you out there listening, we're going to be focusing on audits, and audits and risk are a huge topic in the electronic banking landscape. And Pam is one of those that there's no doubt about it. She's got a lot of experience. She's even got a lot of letters after her name when it comes to working in the area of risk, compliance, and audits. In fact, Pam, how how long have you been working in audit and risk? Oh, dear. That's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, before um, I joined the payment association world, uh, you know, the 11 payment associations, I... Uh, actually headed up the Alabama ACH Association, started that in 2001. So prior to coming over to the association side, I was in banking um, for about 12 years. And so my alphabet soup, I I do have my AAP, um, accredited ACH professional, but the other uh, audit certifications that I have, certified internal auditor, Certified Information Systems Auditor, I had those designations before I ever um, sat for the AAP. So I was an auditor before I was a payments professional. Wow. So you do have a lot of experience in doing this. And one of the things, too, that I like to have expressed for our listeners is some of the basics of this. And one of the basic questions that I've had come up is something like this. Why do we do audits? What's the purpose? Why do we have to do audits in the banking industry? Well, that is a a very good question, and it may sound elementary, but um, it's a a long answer. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Of of course, um, it was interesting in my banking experience um, with the bank in Michigan for over 10 years, and the first five years or so in internal audit. And then as I progressed into different areas of the bank, one of my first um, areas to manage, I became the electronic banking operations manager. And it was funny because that was back in the late nineties. And because they knew that I came from internal audit, they said, Oh, great. Rodriguez you can do our self audit now. And I laugh at that term um, and wanted to make sure I brought it up today. Back in 1989 is when they first put a ballot out to adopt what they call the self audit for rules compliance. And so to answer the question, Kevin, why do we do audits? Because we want to inspect what we expect from a compliance perspective. So are we in compliance with the rules? And that ballot did not pass in in 1989, June of 1989. Three years later, in April of 92, we finally passed a ballot that had some requirements. Uh, They weren't real 
intense and it said periodic review. I'll never forget that. So it was in every three years. So it was that. And so there in the nineties, that's when I went over to manage electronic banking operations when they were still calling it a self audit. And I just looked at everybody and said, and that's why I'm trying to all these years eliminate use of that term because self audit. So I'm going to audit myself and I'm going to write myself up that I messed up here, here, and here, knowing that's going to go to the board of directors saying what an awful job I did. So when we talk about audit, please don't do a self audit. It should be an audit performed by someone that has absolutely nothing to do with the ACH function. So I know that was a long answer to a short question, but. But I, I think you're right though. I mean, I think you hit on a key topic right there is the fact that self audits, while they are allowed by the rules, they were then, they still are, but there is some fallacies that come along with it. And that is, you know, you're going to be biased to yourself. You're going to think I don't do anything wrong. And if you do find something wrong, then you're going to be put to an integrity test of having to show and admit, hey, I made this mistake. And that's really hard for people to do. I would add that not only should the audit be done by somebody else, I, I love your credentials, and I think that if it is an ACH audit, I believe, it's not required by the rules, but I believe it should be an AAP that is doing the audit because they then have demonstrated an expertise in understanding the rules, and then having your audit certifications on top of it, I think that would make for the prime candidate to do an audit. Well, and I have said, if I could count the number of times I've said, my AAP designation is what makes me a thorough ACH auditor, not my audit designations. Um, and so coming into this industry with the you know two audit certifications doesn't make me a good ACH auditor. It's my knowledge of the rules. So I agree with you hands down, Kevin, um, an AAP without audit designations, I would go with rather than, you know, there's maybe CPAs or CIAs out there that are maybe doing audits that don't have as thorough of an understanding of the rules and really what we're asking financial institutions and their third parties to comply with. I have to agree. I, I mean, I'm not saying that the CPAs out there that they don't do a good job because I know there are CPAs out there that are certified. I just, it is my belief that having an AAP that does it is even better. Now, another question though for you, you even talked about used to be that the periodic review or the periodic audit took place every three years. Yes. Is, what would you tell people now when it comes to, I mean, it used to be every three years or why is every three years not really a good idea for doing an audit? Well, in December of 1999, you see, I've been around yet. I never answered that question. How long have I been around? Long enough to have all this chronological happenings with the audit. In December of 99, we changed it to an annual requirement. And I don't know if you picked up on just a bit ago, I said, and your third party service providers. We added in December of 99, the uh, requirement for third-party service providers to also complete an annual ACH audit compliance of, of the rules. And so we expanded the requirement, uh, we made it annual, and we also increased the number of rules that needed to be audited. And you're talking about auditing actually against the rules. 
Yeah, and so in the Appendix A, which um, was sunset January 1st of the beginning of this year, so there is no longer um, Appendix A, so I'm doing a session entitled uh, The Top 10 Cures for Appendicitis After the Removal of Appendix A, and I, I always, uh, in the session description, I, I want to ask the audience, and I ask this audience today, have you been using the checklist that was contained in Appendix A as a guide for your ACH audit work papers. If you answered yes to that, you, you need, uh, you know, the top 10 cures for appendicitis after the removal of Appendix A. Now, the 35 requirements that you formerly saw in Appendix A, some of those were specific to originating financial institutions, some specific to receiving only. So in March of 03, so there's been a lot of changes as you see over the years from a rule perspective. In March of 03, we expanded the audit requirements for the ODFIs and the RDFIs. And then in 09, we added even more rules, but 35 things to audit compared to, and we actually went through the exercise, uh, we, we audit compliance with Articles 1, 2, and 3, period. Not just 35 things that we arbitrarily selected should be audited. So we went from looking at 35 things to over 100. Wow. And, you know, the things that you audit compliance with will vary say for the originating depository financial institutions in Article 2, there are all of your compliance obligations. Well, and they're all in there by standard entry class code. So if you're not transmitting IATs and BOP or POP or ARC, you know, those you won't audit against. So the number of things that you'll look at will vary based upon the complexity of your ACH processing environment. Okay, and you said like 100 things. So really the purpose of an audit is to make sure you're doing everything right according to the rules. And there can be up to 100 plus things that need to be checked, right? Right, and let me, emphasis added is, it's not just the ACH five pound rule book that you need to be auditing against. There are things in the federal government green book, the treasury uh, payments, that need to be incorporated into your scope. So you really have to take the blinders off when you're doing an ACH audit because other regulations, like my example, a green book, um, the uh, Reg E, I mean, that comes into play. And so it really was, uh, for me, a pivotal moment for the network to finally, and, and we've been talking about this for several years, but you know, change is tough at times. And the last thing that the network wanted to, you know, convey is, hey, you don't have to do an audit. No, it's better because simply put, you audit against Article 1, 2, and 3. Article 1's for all financial institutions. Article 2, I said, is for the ODFIs. And Article 3 is for RDFI only, so if there's financial institutions that just haven't decided to put their toe in the water and become an ODFI, then of course they don't need to audit compliance with Article 2 because they're not originating. 
So if we break that down, it basically comes to this. You audit for what you're doing. If you're yeah. only receiving entries, you audit for that. If you receive and you send entries, you audit for that as well, right? Exactly, exactly. And I'll point out too, uh, in the 2019 rule book, and they did not pull out Appendix A. Oops, that was a mistake, but it doesn't exist. And so what I'd like to do, it'd be great just to rip it out of the rule book where you can hear that sound effect, but they did add some new guidelines in chapter 13 of the guidelines specific to ODFIs. They've added some new guidelines in chapter 30 for the RDFIs. And then you'll also find um, in the guidelines a new chapter, um, 56, that speaks specifically to uh, the audit. So there's a whole new chapter, even though the appendix is gone, there's now a whole new chapter that is dedicated to the audit. And for those of you listening who aren't as familiar with the rules book, we have the operating guidelines and we have the operating rules. And the rules are written in a legalese form that can be a lot harder to understand. It's much more, I'd say, even technical. And the guidelines are written in a paragraph, almost story format, I would say, because there are examples that are put in there to help people better understand the way that the rule is to be applied. Yes, very well put. It gets a little <laughs> confusing. But yes, we did um, issue, because, you know, we know, and I'll tell you, since the uh, removal of Appendix 8, I've trained um, FDIC examiners and CUA examiners because, like I said at the beginning, when I asked the question, you know, have you been using Appendix 8 as, you know, your guide for your work papers? If so, we need to do something. Um, and then, I'm, you know, getting the question, well, what do we audit now that it's gone? And so a lot of uh, examiners, auditors out there just looking for, okay, where, where do we begin now? So that, that's kind of where I come in and say, well, we audit compliance with, you know, articles one, two, and three, but, but simply, and, and let me just say too, um, Kevin, that new chapter 56 in the guidelines, uh -huh. it is not in the rule book that got mailed to everybody. It was issued February 1st of 2019 in supplement number 1-2019. So supplement 1-2019. If somebody wanted to get that, where would they get that from? I, I really think, Kevin, you could solve public knowledge. Um, they could, you come to me, but I would Google, you know, NACHA ACH rule amendment supplement number 1-2019. And I, I actually think it might even be on NACHA.org uh, homepage. I'm pretty sure it's out there somewhere on notcha.org. They are good about getting information like that out and making it available to the public. Yeah, so if anybody in the audience is going through the rule book going, oh my gosh, where's chapter 56? Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't make a mistake. You're not going to find it because they issued that February 1st of this year as an additional supplement. And that's where you'll also find revisions to chapter 13 and 30 with more guidance, if you will, um, for, for those that have been pretty much relying on Appendix 8. 
Well, I, I got to ask a couple of questions because you've really teased us with some things. I mean, you even brought up the question and I, I, I got to know the answer to this because I'm sure other people caught on it too. You talked about the top 10 things and then you said, where do I begin? Well, <laughs> where does somebody begin? I mean, you're, you're working with NCUA, FDIC auditors, training them. You're working with financial institutions. You mentioned working with third parties. I know that you run a, a organization and a staff of people that are out doing these audits. So when that question comes in, that basic question of where do I begin? Well, where, what is the first step? Where's the first thing I should look at and what should I do? Well, oh my goodness, I wish we had hours for this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't want people to get scared away from the audit hearing that. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I could talk about this all day, but when I talk about, you know, when I say the top 10 cures for appendicitis after the removal of Appendix A, I really did. I wish we had the David Letterman music, Kevin, we could play that. Um, but I really did do this session, David Letterman style, back in April, and I, I came up with, if, if I were all y'all that aren't as close to this as I am, where would I begin? And so the, the number 10 for me is, you know, first of all, determining what, what's your audit methodology. You know, the rules don't tell us how to audit we have to rely on, on guidance from our auditors. So, so that's really, you know, an easy one that you've probably established. I would begin by reading chapter 13, 30, 56, and let me throw in chapter 50 as well, uh, third party service provider chapter. They've added some language in there related to the audit requirement because as a reminder, third-party service providers and third-party senders have to complete an audit of rule compliance as well. So that's a good starting point. And, and you know, Kevin, we've been... You I wonder, no, Pam, I, I'm sorry, but I wonder how many people are out there going, she just told me to read four chapters of the ACH operating rules to get started. <laughs> well, you don't know what you don't know. The other, I have to agree. <laughs> you know, I mentioned uh, about taking the blinders off. You should be familiar with FFIEC guidance. I, I know, oh, I'm sorry. It, it, wherever they are and what time zone they might be listening to this when we go live. But the Retail Payments uh, System IT Examination Handbook, mm -hmm. where it talks about credit risk and operational risk and business continuity planning. I see that as a huge gap when we're out in the field. It's because people have just been focused on the 35 things they saw in Appendix 8 for all these years. So the IT audit examination manual. So when I talk about other, you know, guidance, FFIEC guidance key, I've already mentioned the Green Book. I would audit against Chapter 4 and 5 of the Green Book because Chapter 4, there's requirements that, are expected of financial institutions once they learn a death. And Kevin, as you know, chapter five reclamations, and that's where you oh, yes. lose money. You can lose um, a lot of money. In fact, you know, what, I, I want to just reiterate for everybody out there listening that you can do a self audit. And what we're just trying to do is educate everybody on understanding what an audit is, what you got to do to it. And as you're probably all gathering and understanding is it's not as easy is just getting a simple checklist and going through. There are many different areas that you've really got to study, and I would say become an expert in to be able to 
expert at to be able to do a successful audit. Pam, what are the results that will happen to a financial institution should they do, let's say, let's call it a bad audit or not a thorough audit. They were to have an issue that goes undiscovered until, well, maybe it's too late or at a bad time. What can happen from not having a thorough or good audit in place? Well, I, I do want everyone to know that Notcha, I would say, I'm gonna say five years ago, mm-hmm. finally, after me begging and begging and begging, you know, the, they're the rule governing body. And I, I mentioned my little inspect what you expect earlier, but I always had a little bit of heartburn because I'm like, okay, who's making sure that, you know, the IRS random samples that we did our tax return, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so who's making sure that everybody's doing the audit? So uh, NACHA does go out, random samples, requesting uh, proof of completion of audit from financial institutions on a regular basis. Every month I get copied on those. So what can happen? The audits are a requirement of the rules. The rules have a have the national system of fines and non-completion of an audit could result in a class two violation, which could be very steep penalty. But Kevin, um, back to, you know, if you did the audit and you had issues and they weren't addressed, well, when we come back in, if it's us, I mean, we're going to issue a, you know, repeat finding, but audit reports should be going, you know, to your board of directors, or if you're a larger FI, maybe you have an audit committee or a risk and compliance committee, but you can't, you know, compliance is not an option. You can't just go, oh, Um, non-compliant. I I think I'll just ignore that and move on. So there can be potential penalties um, for not complying with the rules and not addressing the audit findings. You know, I would add to that that yes, there's no doubt that you could have a regulator come in, find something that they, you know, penalize you for. There's no doubt. And there's losses that you could suffer because you're not doing things correctly. But I even tell people, your auditor is really your best friend because they're going to make sure you are doing everything correctly and right so that you don't have to worry about those fines, whether they come from NACHA or they um, come from other areas. But also think about if you capture where you're making mistakes, you could save yourself losses. Like you mentioned reclamations in Chapter 5 of the Green Book. Not handling those correctly can lead to incredible losses. Not handling your returns correctly can lead to astronomical level losses or in the long run. I mean, I know in, from your history, you, you've worked with financial institutions that have suffered six, almost seven digit losses because they weren't doing things correctly and they didn't find out in time. Right. No, and it, it is. And I, I refer to our, you know, I think it's just that old term audit. You know, I try to call us advisors because to your point, Kevin, we really are, you know, we show up, we're here to help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and, and we really are and want our members and clients to not only understand the rules, but be in compliance with those rules. Absolutely. 
And the audit is a great thing for being able to discover that. Now, I, I got another question because we've talked about the past. We've talked about what's currently happening and I, I love what you're doing out there. Uh, you know, I'm really interested too. If you can give us maybe some dates where you're doing that top 10 presentation, might be able to add those to the website when the podcast goes live. I'd love to share that with everybody if you can give that to me. Um, so when we post it, we can put your most current dates. But what do you see? Where do you think the future of audits is going? Like, let's say, and if you were to be able to make one thing happen in auditing and what, maybe it's in the rules, maybe it's in the process, what it would be. I, I know mine personally, I would put a rule that says an AAP has to do the audit, that you've got to have an AAP to be able to do the audit. But what would you, with all your years of experience, your insight and all that you're doing when it comes to compliance, it comes to risk and it comes to audit, what's the one thing that would really be the best thing we could have happen in the future for auditing? Oh gosh, so get out my crystal ball here. Um, yeah, I, I'm with you as far as, I think there should be a rule that requires it be not only an AAP, but someone independent of the function. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know that's kind of assumed. And when you look at the old Appendix 8, you know, it, it'll say performed under the, you know, direction of senior management and the audit committee, whatever, you know, that language. But I, because I've seen enough where, um, and especially say third parties, a payroll processor, oh, we did our own audit. But I'll tell you the one thing um, is we talk about NACHA certified for third parties. <clears throat> Part of that program, NACHA requests a copy of the audit. And if it was done by somebody that is directly involved with the processing of ACH, it won't be accepted as a valid audit. So I could see that as becoming another amendment to the rules where it explicitly says it needs to be somebody that's independent of the function. The other thing too, and I don't think it gets talked about enough, um, is looking at a risk-based view of the rules. Whereas, you know, in, in the beginning, you know, all the warranties and liabilities for most part rest with the ODFI, but when we look at some of our rules, like say non-response to NOC, Kevin, that's the most violated rule in the network. I think over 85% of the violations, right? Mm -hmm. Originators not responding to NOC. So when I say adding a risk component to the rules, so non-response to NOC, on a scale of one to three, low being, you know, high risk and, and three being low, non-response to NOCs, yeah, you can get fined for them, but I think about, okay, establishing of exposure limits. You see what I'm saying is that would kind of be my dream come true and, and something that we continue to work on is now that we have these hundred plus rules that we have to audit compliance with, Let's risk rate them, right? <laughs> and say, okay, not establishing exposure or not monitoring unauthorized returns 
is probably riskier than originator not responding to an NLC. Do you see where I'm going with that? I do. And in fact, I, I got a feeling I might have to have you back on the show just to talk oh. about a risk-based view. And, <laughs> and as we close out here, I got one last question that I want to hit you up with. And it has to do with on the future. And you're talking about it being an independent function. Because I do want to reiterate for everybody out there listening, you are allowed to do a self-audit. I know there's some people that might be out there even saying, we have a completely separate department. There's total separation in the organization by, of the people who perform the functions of processing versus the people who work in compliance and perform the audit. But even with that said, I know that's not always possible based on the scale and size of the financial institution. And if that being said too, I believe you even have experience, and I don't want to say names, but I believe, don't you have experience with working with the top 20 and even some of the top 10 financial institutions in the country when it comes to performing their audit that even they go to doing the external? We do, and you know, I'm blushing, but we do have a very diverse client base, you know, anywhere ranging from 50 million in assets to multi-billion dollar um, financial institutions. And, and Kevin, some of the big ones have brought us in to the point you made earlier because nobody in the audit department had an AAP. So see, that kind of confirms my comment that, you know, my CIA and CISA don't make me a good ACH auditor, but my AAP does. Mm -hmm. So we see, uh, we, we've seen a trend the last few years because the rules, you know, are getting more complex um, and more difficult to understand. And, and so we have had larger FIs instead of utilizing their own internal audit department. They want a new perspective. They want a team in there that, you know, lives, breathes, eats, sleeps the ACH rule book. And that's what we do. We're ACH geeks <laughs> all right well pam thank you so much for being on the show um would you like to make any closing comments before we end the show today i i guess i just want everyone out there that's listening please don't lay awake in bed at night wondering you know where to begin or uh you know where to start with your audit program please you know give me a call and I'll share all the top 10 cures for appendicitis and how, you know, you can uh, transform your own audit process into one that reviews all of the rules and then all of the other regulations you should be taking into consideration when you're doing that audit. So I thank you, Kevin. I, I've really enjoyed our time together. Oh, Pam, thank you for being on the show. And to all of you out there listening, I would love to hear your comments. I'd be glad to share them with Pam as well. If you need more on getting something like the AAP, because it was mentioned several times in the show, you can find information on that by going to your regional payment association. You can also go to NACHA. And of course, if you want, you can message or email me and I will direct you in the right area to be able to get that information out there. Also, if there are any topics that you would like to have discussed on the payments podium in the future, maybe you even want to be on the podium yourself, if you will email Kevin at paymentsprofessor.com, I'll be glad to look over those topics, get the speakers, and get the payments podcast out to you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.